If you're going to be a landman, if you really want to be a landman, make the commitment to and be willing to pay the price um, that it takes to be successful. And that's going to be hard work and you got to be dependable and you got to be consistent. You got to be willing to learn and never stop learning. And you got to be, you know, honest. You got to bring a lot of integrity. Welcome to the Land Department Podcast the state of land and energy as we see it. Brandon, I know that we're going to have some great stories today. I want to start with a story from you about how you met Jack Clark. Uh, it's got to be a good one, I'm sure. <laughs> well, I meant to talk to you about this before the podcast. It wasn't that great. <laughs> we, oh. <laughs> there was nothing There was nothing just supernatural about it. Uh, it was work. Uh, Tom Havenstreit uh, identified and Jack and Tom Havenstrad identified a need that uh, Derby needed on the uh, back office side. And uh, we came in, uh, I was under this disguise of associated resource at that point and uh, talked to him about what their needs were. We never ended up doing any work for Derby on the ARI side, but uh, uh, gave me a great opportunity to meet uh, somebody I truly respect and, and enjoy their company now, Jack Clark, is a, a heck of a guy and a very smart and knowledgeable landman. Uh, and we've done a lot of hunting and shooting and hanging out since. So it's uh, he's definitely been a blessing in my life. And I also want to say, Khalil, that stash that you got going on right now, legit little caterpillar. <laughs> it's uh, it, it's. It's a miracle that I still have it and that my wife hasn't killed me for keeping it. So yeah. <laughs> it, it probably won't last much longer. Uh, man, Jack, it, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. I can already tell that we're going to enjoy this. And it's uh, I like the energy you've got. You're a Norman guy. I'm a Norman guy. We're going we're gonna to have fun today. Um, yeah, first impressions of working with Brandon. I'm sure that he was a little bit younger when you first, when you first worked with him. Yeah. Uh, First impressions of Brandon. Well, I mean, it was evident to me early on that he was bright. And, uh, and of course, I, I, I had developed, I've known Tom Havistrike for 30 years, but uh, just an acquaintance for about 23 or four of those years. And I got to know Tom a lot better uh, beginning about six years ago when I reached the Dudley Land Company and they began doing Derby's brokerage work. And, um, a lot of respect for Tom. Of course, Tom Dudley. I can remember when I started in the industry. I mean, Dudley Land Company, because uh, I was in, I was a field guy. You know, my pretty much a majority of my career was in the field and as a contract landman. And, you know, Dudley Land Company was the, the bar of excellence. I mean, they just, they were doing things before everybody else and, and, uh, and they were, just a big brokerage firm and they did excellent work and and um and so I, I finally got to know tom beginning in about i guess 16 or something like that and we became good friends and and learning about dudley land company from tom haven perspective and and then having dudley land company do my brokerage work and, and of course i'm an old broker um smaller broker than dlc but uh but just watching their processes and their people and their professionalism and, and the level of quality work that they delivered. Um, 
for a great price. I mean, I was just always continually impressed and, and, uh, in that respect just grew as I began meeting the guys that make it happen at DLC. And so, um, so I knew when I first met Brandon that he was a sharp guy or he wouldn't have been in the position he was in because Mr. Hamistride didn't put anybody that wasn't a sharp guy in those kind of positions. And, uh, so it, it was fun. We, as Brandon said, we didn't end up getting to do anything with ARI at that point in time, but we, but they, they've taken care of all of our, our, our brokerage needs for the last five or six years. And, and I think we'll continue to do so for a long time. And like Brandon said, we've got to do some hunting and, uh, and I think we played a round of golf. Yeah, you, uh, you took me, you took but, me over uh, to, uh, what's that course over there in Chandler? Um, uh, Buffalo rock. Yeah. 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 We went to Buffalo Rock. That's Cushing. in Cushing, actually. Not Chandler. Yeah. Cushing. Neat old course. And uh, so we've done everything but fishing. I was thinking earlier today, you know, it's Friday and every good land man ought to be thinking about hunting or fishing <laughs> or golfing. You don't want to, but it's a little chilly outside. Yeah. So anyway, well, we're going to cool. do some fishing here pretty soon. We're going to, we talked about that the other day. We'll go down to the lease and make that happen. Yeah, that sounds exciting. Yeah. It'll take some great yep. kids down there. That'll be good. Well, Jack, you've had a, a storied career in the land industry. I want to get a little bit of background, though. How did you get started back in the day, young Jack? How did you get started in the land industry? Khalil, I, as we discussed, I was a Norman guy. I uh, graduated high school, Norman I, and I went off to play two years of college, junior college, baseball. Huh. And, um, and then came back to OU in the fall of 79. And I was trying to think how I got in the PLM program. I mean, and I could not recall a conversation with anybody um, that specifically guided me that way. It was just a real popular degree program at the time. It was 1979 that, you know, the deep gas play was going on in the Anadarko Basin. And, and so I got in the, in the program. Uh, and, and was fortunate in that I got about six or eight weeks of interning type work uh, that first summer of, uh, of 1980. I guess I finished one year in the PLM program and I interned that summer, <clears throat> was back in school in the fall of 80 and uh, had to deal with the reality that we were beginning a family a little sooner than we thought. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and at the time, you know, we didn't have insurance. And I mean, I had to go to work. I, I left school and I went to work for $75 a day and, uh, um, and went to work as a full-time contract limit. I did go back to school at nights in the late nineties and, and ended up getting a bachelor's degree for primarily the purpose of being able to tell my kids, look, I did it. <laughs> you need to get it done too. So, so that's how I got started. Uh, I worked for about four years as a young layman to 84 and um, uh, predominantly for the same brokerage firm that I ended up spending 11, 12 years of my career at, I guess, over two different uh, windows of time. But in 84, Penn Square had happened and, and I was just starving to death. And I mean, nobody had any work. And, and so I left the industry for about six years, seven years. Uh, but then that same brokerage firm called me in 91 and said, Hey, we got some land work. If you'd be interested in 
and I didn't like what I was doing and, and was just thrilled the opportunity to get back into contract land work. And that's what I've done, uh, ever since, since 1991. Um, so I've got about 36 years all total, I guess. Will you talk a little bit about Penn Square for a minute? I mean, it's a little bit, it's before my, I was born. I know it's fairly common and familiar in the industry, but what was that like being a landman during that time? And how quick did everything go? Well, it went fast. Uh, you know, I, uh, to me, 2008 was real similar after the housing bubble. I mean, I was so young that uh, it was kind of difficult for me to see the big perspective of it of it all when when Penn Square went down. I mean, all all I knew is nobody had any work for me. You know, <laughs> I mean, you know, I checked knocking every door I could, and just nobody had any work. And uh, um. So it was a difficult time. I mean, a lot of companies, you know, upside down and that type of thing. But uh, but I, I was so young in the industry then, I wasn't tuned in to too much what was going on up, up the ladder in the, in the big corporations. All I knew is I had, by 84, had two babies, two mouths to feed, and, and, um, and I had to be able to make an income, and, and that caused me, uh, caused me to leave. I, but I think, Khalil, it was similar to 08. I can tell you, my, my little brokerage firm did um, that, that housing bubble deal. I mean, we the revenues that my firm generated in 2008, you know, that housing bubble broke in late third quarter, early fourth quarter of 08. But in 2009, we did 10% of the total revenues that we did for the year in 2008. So 90% of our business went away. Um, And I think Pinchware was similar to that for a lot of landmen, a lot of brokerage firms, a lot of service companies. Gotcha. What did, what got you into starting your own brokerage? When, when does that come into play in your story? Well, I, I, uh, I went back to work for for Texoma land, um, that's the guys I started with, two landmen named Jeff Miller and David Vaughn. I know Jeff's retired. I think David is too. Really good contract landmen, guys that uh, were really influential in my career <clears throat> in that uh, they just did good land work. And they, and, and they both had a, a mentoring personality, a teaching personality. But uh, um, and I've been friends with Jeff for a long time. Jeff and I played baseball together, high school Legion ball. Jeff was a year older than myself, but they called me in '91, <clears throat> and they had a they had a pretty big ticket. I believe it was for Barrett Resources out of Denver. Said, "Hey, we got quite a bit of work. Would you be interested in getting back into land?" And like I said earlier, I, I jumped at the opportunity because I hated what I was doing, and and. Uh, and I worked there from 91 to 98, so another seven years. In the last two or three years, um, I was a project lead, uh, so I got to head up some uh, 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 some projects and that type of thing. And, and, and I actually was able in my last couple of years there to go out and secure some work uh, for the brokerage firm through some contacts I had met. And, and and that was exciting to me, and I was tickled about that because I felt like in some small way I was paying Jeff and David back or or or, or provide or being some type of return on all the time and and efforts that they made and help 
helping me to become a landman. Um, but at, at that point in time, too, um, Khalil, I had four kids by that time. And, and let's see, in 98, they'd have been like 18, 16, 13, and 11. And I'm like, man, how am I going to get these kids through college and so on and so forth? And, and, um, um, and so I decided to hang a shingle. And, uh, and I did, and I think those first two or three years of J.C. Land's existence, about half the time I was working for J.C. Land, about half the time I was working for well, Texoma or J.O. Easley or whoever else had work cause, cause, because I didn't have it, and I and it was looking for it and hunting for it. And uh, we finally got a pretty good Chesapeake uh, ticket in, I think it was 2001, 2002, Larry Kosho. Uh, we did a bunch of work for him on uh, just a curative type diligence type work on their lease files and and it was about a year and a half or two year project that allowed my little firm to put I don't know six or eight people keep six or eight people working but it was a big enough ticket to to help us get a little foundation under us and and then we continued to grow and and, uh, but that's how I got started. I was, I was kind of driven. I just needed to try to make a little more money. There's probably landmen out there that consider, have considered maybe becoming a broker. I think that they might be able to do that job fairly well, those field landmen. What are some of the differences and things that you didn't expect going into becoming a broker after being a field landman? I think I knew, uh, intuitively a, a little bit, but I really didn't understand the difficulty in managing through the ups and downs um, and um, and how critical that was. That's why I listened to Tom Dudley and Tom Havenstreit's story, what they've done with DLC and just, you know, had a ton of respect because in my circle, they they manage through those difficulties better about anybody else I know in a more professional way, in a more corporate way. I mean, a lot of brokers just, you know, when they, when the faucets turn off, they just lay everybody down and everybody goes away and they just hunker down it and, and survive. And, um, and we went through a period at JC Land where we had a lot of growth from like 2001 to 2008. We had went from 10 contractor brokerage firm to 60, 65 people. And, uh, and boy, that thing hit at the end of 2008. And we had, I don't know, we had 20, 25, 30 core staff people that we had spent a lot of time training and, and, um, invested a lot of effort in because the challenge at that point in time was to find managers. I always used to say, you know, all the good landmen or a lot of the old experienced landmen at that time, they didn't want to manage anything. <laughs> they didn't want to manage anybody. Just give me my portion of the work and I'm going to go do it and leave me be, so to speak, but, uh, which I could understand. And, uh, but we worked hard at building people. And then 2009 came and we just had, uh, no work and no revenue. And unlike a lot of the brokers, I, uh, I think I mentioned to Brandon, I related to what Tom Dudley said in his podcast that, cause I like Tom, I wasn't great at letting people go. Um, and especially when we had spent a lot of time in the effort to help them get to where they were in their skill sets. And, and also knowing that they had kids at home, they were feeding their mortgages to pay and, and uh, and so 
for 2009, we kept a lot of people working probably too long. It really adversely affected J.C. Land going forward. And it left me at a point in time. I remember my accountant told me, she said, you know, when are you going to let some more of these people go when you run out of money <laughs> to pay them? And I said, you know, it kind of looks that way because we, uh, we burned through a, a lot of reserves in 2009. But uh, back to your question, Khalil, I didn't truly understand how difficult that was going to be to manage. Yeah, yeah I think what Dudley Land has done and just like Jack said and through history is diversified themselves enough, whether that be by region or by type of work uh, or by training landmen to do different things uh, to stay relevant. Uh, the downtimes hit us all. Uh, they, when they hit, they hurt, uh, especially whenever you're, uh, a smaller brokerage or a brokerage that has typically like Dudley carries a lot of overhead to, uh, to be able to train people and to offer the services that Dudley land offers and offer the product that we do for the price that we do. There's a lot happening on the back, on the back end of that. And, um, the fact that Tom and Tom were visionaries enough and were okay with carrying that, that load, uh, and as good a business development people as they are, um, the fact that they made that commitment was what kind of drove Dudley forward. And it's where we're at today and why, you know, me, Brent, Steve, uh, get to kind of carry on that legacy and, uh, hopefully, hopefully do some things like that they've done and make it better and, and continue it on. We go to, from a, we're third generation. Hopefully we go to a fourth and a fifth generation at some point. So we're currently looking for those people that are visionaries and want to do something special, uh, and continue the Dudley land name, uh, and continue our success. Yeah, for sure. Jack, how did you get out of, you know, after 2009 and the housing crisis, what came next and how did you get to Derby? We just wrestled our way through 2009 and, and, and began getting stood back up on our feet a little bit in 2010. And um, the CEO of Derby is a good friend of mine by the name of Steve Long. And, um, and I met Steve in, I believe it was 2003. Uh, and I met him by virtue of buying a lease from him, leased some minerals that he had. Uh, he was out in Texas County. Uh, and uh, Steve's a rancher, farmer. He's got a big uh, ranching farming operation, and uh, but he he's a landman by degree, and um, and the family has some minerals. Steve always uh, was invested in various ways in oil and gas, and so I I bought that lease from him, and I and I remember, and it's one of the things, one of the questions he asked me is advice to young landmen, and it was a deal where I knew he was a. Uh, important enough in the, in the lease play or in the unit we were trying to put together, I needed to go see him. He was just the kind of guy that you needed to go see and not try to buy the lease on the phone or be a, at that point in time, U.S. Postal Service pretty much. I guess we were beginning to email stuff. But So I went to Guyman and sat down with Steve and we visited a long time and got that lease worked out. And he began to call me and I began to do some little land projects for him. And, uh, Steve put a non-op uh, fund together in the Arcola Woodford, 
uh, where we began. And, well, actually, we started in Fayetteville uh, in Arkansas, and, and we worked over there for about a year on a project that we ended up flipping. And then we went to the Arcoma Woodford in southeast Oklahoma and built a little non-op company by, uh, to quote Steve, by being smart, opportunistic landmen. Um, and uh, so we did that project and, and, and we kind of, Steve kind of stood down. We did some small stuff from eight, nine, 10, 11. And we went up and we looked at the Bakken a couple of times. We, we went up there the first time, I think 2010 and, and just Steve didn't feel like that the play was far enough down the learning curve. Um, he felt like that the results would get better as they drilled more wells and, and, uh, and we went back up there, looked around in 2012, and decided that was the time to do it. And so we went to North Dakota and, and built built that bot leases, participating wells, and uh, built out one fund, and then put a second fund together in the Bakken, and and um, and did the same. Uh, and then in 2017, and by that point in time, I was working as a contract landman pretty much in an in-house capacity, just overseeing all of Steve's stuff. And in 2017, Steve stood up Derby Energy. And uh, and we also have one other non-op fund, our Scoop LP fund. So we have four non-op funds, and then we have Derby Exploration Company, an operating company. And that's when I officially came in-house. Um, so that was kind of my story from 9 to 17. Amazing. Well, storied career, like I said. So I want to get advice for, you know, field landmen as well. Uh, sorry, field, uh, for the in-house landmen from field landmen. So you've had the experience on both sides now of being in-house, in experience of broker, experience of field landmen. What, it, how did your experience as a field landman influence you as an in-house landman today? Well, uh, I sure had understanding uh and significant insight into what my broker was dealing with in, in regards to what I was asking them to get done for me, um, you know, because I spent most of my career out there on the front line. Um, you know, I think the thing that gets missed, or I mean, there's multiple differences, I guess, but, you know, one of the things I've always said since I came in-house, if I'm ever asked by a younger landman that I have any advice, well, one thing, one bit of advice for in-house landman is that I would encourage them all to get up once a quarter at least and go to the field and talk to your surface owners and your mineral owners. If you really want to know uh, the, the culture and the environment and what's going on, I mean, Take a day, leave your office, and go to the field, and get with your field personnel, and and look at your wells. And I just think that's an invaluable thing to do. Um, as far as in or, or contract people coming in house, well, before I leave that last subject, I, you know, Brandon and I have talked about this today with technology. We do so much with emails and text messages and in cell phones, but. Uh, you know, I'd highly encourage young landmen to understand that there are, there are times that you need to get in your truck or your vehicle and go see somebody if you want to get a lease bought, uh, a trade made. Uh, 
you, we can get a lot of it done on the phone and through emails, but sometimes um, you need to get face to face with people. And, and I think we, that's getting lost a little bit, you know, all the technology and, and you can kind of, if you focus on it, you, you'll get a feel for the times that you do. I mean, if you're listening hard to the guy on the other end of the line, you can get a feel pretty quickly. This is a guy I need to go see uh, rather than try to get this all done on the phone. So uh, just to follow up on that, going to the field, it's the same thing. Sometimes you need to go get in front of somebody to make a trade. And But on in-house guys, or, or excuse me, um, contract guys that come in-house, um, or what advice would there be to field guys to understand about the in-house I think about this, Khalil, because it, it is fascinating to me. Um, and that is understanding the economics or financials of what we do to a more significant degree. You know, most brokers and field landmen are told by the in-house guys, you know, the geologists, engineers, we want to own leases here. You know, we're going to drill these kind of wells and, and we've got this kind of authority for you to go try to buy leases. And, uh, um, but, you know, and I'd seen AFEs and, and so on and so forth, but to truly see the economics of how much these wells cost to drill and then what kind of returns they'll make based upon the current commodity price and to truly see the effect on those returns of a point of, of revenue interest in while negotiating a lease or two points revenue interest or the difference in a 500 an acre lease play versus a 1500 an acre lease play and to see what that did to the economics of these wells. But it was fascinating to me. Uh, it just, uh, because I know over my field career, there's plenty of times that I'm standing out there going, doggone, will my client just give me another hundred dollars an acre and I can get this lease bought that they were wanting bought. Uh, or another point to to give the mineral owner the revenue, and they're saying, no, we can't do that. And, and I would struggle a little bit with understanding that. But to, the, and I, when I think this point through, I mean, there's a kind of a natural barrier to the field guy getting exposed to, uh, to the economic side of it because that's, you know, that's real proprietary information. Uh, it's not the kind of thing that the in-house guy can say, hey, come on in here. Let me show you everything, you know, everything. But I would encourage field guys to uh, to try to find a way to to learn and, and, to, and to grasp better understanding of, uh, of the economics of the oil and gas industry and how what they're doing affects and, is, and relates to those economics. And, um, so I would offer that bit of advice and, and then the other things, titles, you know, I'm an older landman and, uh, I just think if you, if a guy really wants to be a landman, contractor, even in-house, um, you, you never go wrong by continually striving to improve your title skills. Um, it's really important. You know, of course we're in brokers. It's hard to manage that. And I know Brandon and, and he, Brent and Steve and Hamish Strike and Dudley, we all wrestle with it as as brokers. You, and that is, you get a person that does something real good, uh, like there's just a good lease buyer. Well, then he becomes your go-to lease buyer. And well, all your lease buyer and you're funneling this guy in, in, in 
and some time goes by and you kind of take inventory. Well, I need him to go do some title work over here, but you know, he didn't have a lot of experience doing title work because we've had him pigeonholed over here for three years buying our leases. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, I guess that's a bit of advice to brokers. If you got good quality people, try to cross train them, try to teach them all sides of the industry and, uh, um, and try to resist how so often today we, we tend to compartmentalize it, you know, and, and find somebody that does something well. And then we just, we don't want to rock that boat, you know? Um, I, I think you're exactly right, Jack. The, I think back some of the most successful projects, um, uh, best clients we have, they allowed their in-house landman to get out to the field and talk to not only the, be around the broker or, but also be around those contract landmen. Um, you know, build a relationship with them as well. Um, can't always do that on every project, you know, some of them are small and short termed, but, uh, on your longer projects and a place that you're making a commitment to, uh, I think you're going to get more benefit out of your in-house landman spending, like I said, three, four days, once a quarter, with those field people, they really get understanding for what the market is in that particular area or how the work has to be done in that particular area. And I think that's huge. The, uh, when you talk about training, when did that start? When did we start kind of assembly lining, uh, leasing and title and curative and right. Yeah. Um, uh, when did we start? kind of symbol lining that it had to be early two thousands when we really started making that segregation between title people and lease people. That's exactly what yeah. I'd say, Brandon. I'd say it correlates a lot with technology. Um, you know, and I think we are probably going to talk about it a little bit. You know, one of the questions you'd ask me to consider is how's the land industry changed over the course of my career? Well, the number one answer to that is technology. Um, and, I mean, the work we do is um, the the type work and the quality of the work we do is still the same or that, or that we're striving to do, but technology's had the same effect on our discipline in the oil and gas industry as, as it has across the whole industry, across our whole culture, where work-related or even personal, and that is... Uh, how can we do it faster? You know, how can we do more of it? And, um, and I think that in response to being driven by technology, that's when people really started getting compartmentalized. Um, you know, to, we need guys to do this and, you know, let's teach them to do that. And then, I just think back to when I started, my first project was in uh, South central Arkansas. And I went and ran the title. And then as the title was getting done, I went out and talked to landowners. I did the title. I bought the leases. Uh, it was the first shell play, which was the Fayetteville shell, where uh, you had your lease agents and you had your title people. And uh, you were kind of the glue in between, you know, taking information from both sides and entering it into a database or building lease packets or whatever the case may be. And uh, just seemed to go really fast from there when now you started having people that just knew how to do title or 
just knew how to buy leases and there's still a few of those around and but there's the few that know both sides or that have the ability to do both sides are extremely valuable and we've tried to keep them in our shop uh, as much as possible you know and you're right i think everybody should make an emphasis if you're if you're a lease buyer you're valuable uh, but if you can learn how to run title, you're, you're going to have both sides and you're going to make yourself a lot more valuable and you're probably going to stay with work for a lot longer. Yep. I agree. Yeah. And it's just like you, Brandon. I mean, I, you know, when I started, we were taught how to run title, but then we were expected, I mean, to type our ownership reports and pick up the phone and call the manor owners who the title we ran and negotiate the leases and type out the leases and, uh, um, so we were, we were taught to do it all. So yeah. I think especially with the rise in technology, the specialists roles can be really a, 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 a weary traffic, uh, weary path to tread down because, you know, the generalist is able to understand the whole picture. Just like you were saying, Jack, if, you know, you're a field landman, if you can understand a little bit more of the economics of the in-house guy, I mean, it really helps your whole, the whole picture and you're going to be able to make better decisions and understand the scope of the project and probably have that better working relationship with your in-house uh, landmen. So, and that's kind of what I want to talk about now. What, what are some of the, besides just the knowledge barriers that come into play, what makes a successful working relationship between the in-house landmen and the field landmen? Um, we've, we've already mentioned the ability to go out in the field regularly to understand what's going on in, in your areas and, and with your people, your personnel. What are some of the things that make a successful working relationship? Well, I, you know, uh, it comes to my mind from the broker's perspective, the contractor's perspective, because you're trying to provide a service and uh, a good service and, and give a quality, give the client a quality deliverable. Um, I think you, you got to be a really good listener. Um, and at times you got to prod people a little bit, try to drag it out of them, but you got to understand where your client is and where they're trying to go and what parameters they have um, to give to you to get there. How much can we pay for these leases? How much time we got to get this done? But most importantly, what's the end objective? Where, where are we going? Because uh, if you understand that, or I always felt like if I understood that as a broker, it helped me in my planning and strategies and, you know, even personnel um, in trying to attack the task and, and deliver that, that high quality deliverable, get the job done for the client. So uh, I would say, I, I would suggest to work hard at getting your in-house landman to communicate with you and make clear to you where, 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 what and where he's trying to get to so that you can do your best to assist in, in, in getting that accomplished. Yeah, Jack, I think there's two things that we like to talk to our clients about right up front. What are you trying to do? What's your goal? And then also, what are your reporting parameters? If we're working with an in-house landman, who are you reporting to and what are you going to have to report? What does that look like? Because yeah. the worst thing that can happen is you start a project and we send our client a report and it's not what they need and they're reporting to their 
their higher ups and it's not what they're looking at. So really when you working with a broker, they need to know what your goal is and then what's your reporting parameters. Um, at Dudley land, we can, we can modify our reports pretty simple. Uh, we just need to know what you're looking for and how you're going to report it. We can make your job a lot easier if we know that you're not building the reports, we'll build your report for you and hand it off to you, have a meeting with you once a week. So you understand what's in it. Well said, Brandon, that's exactly what I was trying to say. And, uh, and you got to be a little bit flexible. I mean, you want to adhere to, you know, once you've got good processes built, I mean, you certainly want to adhere to them, but you still have to be a little bit flexible because not every client's going to want the same type of reports and, and same type of deliverables, just like you're saying. And, you know, you've talked a little bit about how technology has impacted uh, the industry since the start of your career. I'd like to kind of, get your pulse on where you feel like the industry is going as a whole, Jack, over the next, you know, several years, where you see things shifting and, uh, you know, changing a little bit. I think that um, analytics, you know, I'm exposed to some of these young guys and I watch what they do on the DI platforms and Pangea and, uh, um, and just utilizing databases and that type of thing to see trends. So, you know, technology it really affording the opportunity if a person is willing to kind of get elbow deep into it, some great analytics. And, uh, and that helps you oftentimes um, not necessarily cut corners, <clears throat> but I would describe it as finding a shorter path to where I'm trying to get to. Um, so uh, analytics side of things comes to mind, uh, especially for managers in-house or uh, or project managers and brokers that are or, that are asking and, and getting the questions answered that Brandon was talking about. What what kind of de deliverables do you need or reporting do you need? Where do you want to go? What's your goal? Uh, but then you got to go back. You got so much technology, so much information today that's available to you. You need to be pretty good at mining that information and analyzing it. And, constantly trying to ask and answer the right questions of how can I get something done well and correctly faster and, <laughs> uh, and more quickly than, than maybe the way we used to do before we had all this data, uh, to mind and yeah, Jack, I got a question for you. So we've seen, mm -hmm. you know, oil price is around $75 a barrel right now. We've seen the gas price go from, you know, kind of steady around seven dollars down to two forty over the last three months. Um, we're seeing this renewables market and carbon capture market, uh, battery storage market come into play. Uh, how do you see, or do you see? I mean, what's your kind of perception over the next ten years for you know the oil and gas market as it relates to land work? Well, uh, I think brokers brandon that are doing the kind of things dlc is doing and i know there are other good brokers out there doing it as well um, are doing the right thing in, in that um, we've got to get involved in the renewables we've got to understand what's going on in the renewables and in and, and what our place and our role is there to to assist because um, they are now part of the energy um, spectrum 
and uh, and I think are going to continue to grow to and and be a, a greater part over years to come. At the same time, I'm a fan of Chris Wright's at Liberties, and and, and I think think like most oil and gas guys, we understand and know that we we're going to be using oil and gas for a long time, um, and um, and so we still got to maintain that skill set. But uh, um, but. I think a, a good landman, again, you know, kind of back to title and leasing, like we were talking about compartmentalizing, guys, the more skill set you've got, the more arrows you can put in your quiver as a landman. I can do title work. I can negotiate leases. I can do due diligence. I understand, um, you know, about permitting for so, solar farms or, or, or windmills or that type of thing. I've worked on some of these projects. The more you broaden your skill set, more quivers you have in the arrow, uh, the better off you are. And certainly as a brokerage firm, uh, you've got to try to cover all those bases because it's a it's a growing part of our industry. So that's what I think. But I'm, young, I'm going to leave that to you young guys, Tim, Tim, Brandon, because I think, holy cow, I'm, you know, it's interesting, guys. I went to a time management seminar. This is like 2001. Priority management, just a time management workshop about using a calendar and an outlook and stuff to manage your time. And, uh, and one of the things I'll never forget the guy said, he said Harvard University had done a study in 99 or 2000, I guess 2000. And, and, um, and they reported from that study that they felt like from 1980 to 2000, because of cell phones and text messages and emails and the internet, that the average person and cable TV, you know, it went from four, three or four or five channels to hundreds, but that people were dealing with 70 times more information on a daily basis than they did in 1980, 20 years prior. And now it's been 23 years since then. And who knows what that number is today, but, uh, um, but I can always relate to that. I mean, I, uh, it, it's like, and I think about it today and, this the question you asked me about the renewables in the future there i just i happen to be at the at the end of my career and uh and kind of look at all that and think man i'm glad i don't have to learn all that too <laughs> you know i try to cover those bases too because i know you need to i know that's the future and uh, uh but i'm thinking i've got enough information pounding me from all directions to uh, uh to jump into something new today but it's <laughs> certainly needs to be done by younger guys that are going to continue to be landmen for years to come. I know you've already given some advice, Jack, for the, the landmen of the future, but what are some, what are some other things besides just, you know, get out there and, and see people in person that you can offer to the, uh, the young landmen that are listening today? Boy, you know, being a hard worker, um, it's such a huge thing in my generation. I mean, we just grew up. I had a grand, I had a granddad, and he and he basically said it just like this: he said, "Son, if you work hard, and if you do right by people, um, in the end, you ought to win." And um, and so I've always adhered to that. I, uh, I've always been willing to to work hard. I've always kind of wanted to pride myself in in being a guy worker. Hell, I've had to work hard, <laughs> you know, because I've always felt like I'd, uh, 
probably never was the sharpest tack in many boxes. So I had to get up and hustle and, and work hard. Uh, my advice to young landmen, you got to be consistent. I mean, if you're going to be a landman, if you really want to be a landman, make the commitment to it, uh, to make a career out of it and, um, and be willing to pay the price um, that it takes to be successful. And that's going to be hard work and you got to be dependable and you got to be consistent. You got to be willing to learn and never stop learning. Um, and you got to be, you know, honest. You got to bring a lot of integrity. I mean, we're negotiating all the time and on behalf of clients and, and, um, you've got to work hard to ensure you maintain your integrity and, um, um, and again, I go back to, because it seems to me that it's a little bit lost on some of our younger generation. They they don't grasp the concept of, uh, of paying a price to be successful. I mean, if you want to be successful, you, you're generally going to have to work hard at it. I, I got a, I got a quiver of grandkids today, and I tell it, look, it don't matter if it's math or volleyball or basketball or baseball or art or playing the violin. If you want to be good at something, you got to work at it. You got to put in the time and sacrifice, you know, make some sacrifices and work at it. Um, it's not going to just come most things to most kids or most young people just come easy. You know, I guess there's a few, (laughs) but most of the time you got to pay a price and work at it. So encourage young women to be willing to work hard. Very wise, Jack. You know, you said you're nearing the end of your career. Where are we going to be finding Jack in a few years' time? Are you going to be on the golf course? Are you going to be at the lease? The golf course, the hunting lease, my toes in the sand on a beach, <laughs> and, uh, and maybe chasing some grandkids around to volleyball tournaments or basketball tournaments or, or choir concerts. See one. I got one. Gosh, that kid can sing like a doggone. Uh, he, he's just unbelievable. He's made the all he he's made the all state junior high choir for two years running, and uh, and it was kind of fun. I got a big old family at our family Christmas get together. There's about fifty of us there, and we huddled up, say a prayer. And I said, "Let's sing a Christmas carol." And I turned to this grandson. I said, "James, pick a Christmas carol and and sing it for us." And um, and they had just been singing God rest you merry gentlemen, I guess, in his choir class. And he breaks out to it, just closes his eyes, starts singing. And the whole room is going, wow, this kid it is. You know, two years ago, he was a tenor. And then last year, he was a baritone. And this year, he's a bass. And uh, so I'm going to be chasing grandkids. I'm I'm off on a tangent now. No, that's good. Talking about Jamie and how beautifully he sings. But but that's what I see myself doing. And still, I don't want to hang around a little bit, maybe doing something. I mean, Brandon calls me and says, Hey, I got something. What you did, what you think about? Yeah, I'm with people I like in a small project and uh, something like that. Maybe still doing a little work. And, yeah. But that's where I see myself. I'll send you some title, Jack. Well, <laughs> there you go. Keep you around as long as we can. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Man, well, Jack, this has been a pleasure Thank getting you. to chat with you. Thanks for your wisdom, your stories, sharing about your career. Um, send us to your grandkids too. They need to know about Jack's history, right? I might, I might do that. I haven't thought about that, but I might. But I've enjoyed it too, guys. Thank you, Jack. We appreciate you and we'll see you around. Okay. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Land Department. 
Check out our website in the show notes or visit dudley-land.com to learn more about us. 